This is Annie Grace, and you're listening to this Naked Mind podcast, where without judgment, pain, or rules, we explore the role of alcohol in our lives and culture. Hi, this is Annie Grace, and welcome to this Naked Mind podcast. So, oh man, I am super excited to have today's guest because we were really good friends in real life when we were really little. So I think like Darcy, I feel like you were my best friend in fourth grade. I think I spent like all the whole summer at your house. Anyway, this is Darcy Gector. Um, she is the Hi, author. Everyone. Hi, Darcy. So good to have you. Um, this book, which just came out. And so, and Darcy has a cool story to share about like my book, which is super random. So anyway, welcome. Thank you for being here. So fun. Thanks for having me, Annie. That's awesome. Well, I also thought you were on the Today Show, weren't you? I was on Good Morning America. So like the competitor show. The competitor. So it's pretty cool. Like our class at Aspen was 54 people and we have one person who was on national TV and one person who was almost on national TV. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. My, um, so Darcy, just for this book, which is, so, okay, first of all, um, Darcy is, we're going to get into your whole story, but the first woman ever on the planet and still to have ever kayaked the entire of the Amazon River from source to sea, which is what I really want to talk about because it's mind-blowing and awesome and just so inspirational, I think, right now for women to be doing powerful, groundbreaking things. And I love that um, so much. And so you were just, like, we were just talking about it before we started recording. You were just in New York, recorded for the Today Show, did like 30 minutes of footage, sent them kayaking footage, and then... <laughs> Yeah, then I got a call at midnight Sunday, and I was supposed to be on the show Monday, and they said they had to cancel because a third-hour staffer tested positive for coronavirus, so they canceled all their guests. <sighs> and uh, yeah, this was definitely a bummer because we went all the way to New York just for that, but we made the most of it, and we everything was closed. Like We had tickets to Book of Mormon, but it got canceled, so Don and I walked about 30 miles over two days in New York and uh, saw the sights. We had to avoid the subway, of course, but uh, yeah, we made the most of it, but it was definitely disappointing. Yeah, I saw but your I, pictures on Instagram. You're like walking over the Brooklyn Bridge. You're like, nobody's here. It's just me. How weird. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you see all those movies of New York City when it's like packed shoulder to shoulder in the streets and uh, we, we didn't have that experience, so that was kind of nice. Oh, that's, and yeah. I realized that everybody's lives are being disrupted by the coronavirus, so we can all share in our disappointment. Yes, for sure. And, and I feel like, honestly, like, so I had to run upstairs, and if I was out of breath when we started to get Darcy's book, because it's been on my bedside table, um, because I've been reading it, and, and it actually, for me, right now, has been really inspiring to read. Like, it's, it's really cool. It's an intense book. I mean, you... you there's a lot of intense stuff that happened to you, which I hope maybe you'll tell a little bit about. But um, it, it's also just great to read something that's such a powerful adventure story of overcoming and be like, okay, like we can do hard things. This is intense. And you can take me completely out of my reality because, you know, I'm stuck in my house with my three kids. And yet here I am, if I'm, I'm reading with you, all of a sudden I'm, I'm somewhere in you know, the middle of the jungle. So yeah. Well, awesome. So, yeah, I'm glad you're enjoying it. And that, yeah, I hope that it can 
be a little beacon of light right now. So when you were doing this, like, can you talk about, um, well, first let's talk a little bit about, uh, your journey, like with alcohol, because that's, that's why people tune in to this podcast and we always want to hear, uh, people's stories. So why don't you just talk a little bit about your journey there? And then I want to get, uh, specifically into your journey because I'm just personally fascinated with the Amazon part. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. So I'll kind of start on the Amazon trip with alcohol because we, um, we had 25 days of whitewater kayaking. And during that time, we were really focused and kayaking like eight to 10 hours a day and really exhausted. But then we got to the flat water and we had 123 days of flat water. And it got a little boring. And it was um, me, a guy named Don Beveridge, who's my boyfriend, and another guy named David Midgley, who is a computer programmer from London. And David, who I'll call Midge, he didn't always want to kayak as long or as hard as Don or I did. So we kind of were bored and a little bit struggling with the pace. And uh, we drank a lot in the flat water, like at during the day when we were bored and at night when we were bored. Um, so that kind of started a point in my life where I was drinking more than I wanted to be drinking. And it was also a time in my life where I had a lot of time to think. And um, so a little backstory about the Amazon trip. It was Midge's idea. And he came up with it when he was about 33. It was kind of maybe his midlife crisis. And he didn't want to spend his entire life stuck behind a computer writing code, which is what he does. And he's very good at it. So he decided he would kayak the Amazon. And he decided that because nobody had ever kayaked it before. Like at that point, five people had descended it, but they had either rafted or walked around the whitewater. So no one had kayaked the whole thing. And then he read a statistic that more people had walked on the moon than had kayaked the Amazon. So that made up his mind. But Midge had never kayaked before, like never even been in a kayak and never uh, camped or done anything. And he dedicated 10 years of his life to be able to become a class five kayaker, which is like the hardest rating of whitewater so that he could do the whole thing. So I thought a lot about this and I was like, that is really some insane dedication. Like this guy worked so hard and he really truly pulled off an amazing feat. And um, at that point I had a, a whitewater goal of mine, which was to kayak the Stikine River in Northern British Columbia. And people call it like the Everest of rivers. And it's this really hard three day long, like class five plus big water. And I kept on like, training but kind of half-heartedly because I wanted to like make sure I got home in time to drink and I was drinking a lot that I would often feel hungover and my training wasn't going as I had planned and I thought like on the Amazon trip I thought to myself like I will never kayak the Stikine unless I can quit drinking and like Midge was a pretty good inspiration to me even though I was really annoyed with him a lot but I was like he did this you know he if Midge can kayak the Amazon, I can kayak the Stikine. Like that was kind of where my brain was going. So that- Because that's, that's significantly harder than the Amazon. It is significantly harder than the Amazon. It's a lot shorter. So, you know, in one way it's easier because your focus or your attention span only has to be three days, but still three days of like the hardest imaginable whitewater is, is hard in terms of both mental, like mental focus and physical abilities. And so, yeah, more difficult whitewater than the Amazon, but maybe less challenging overall. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Yeah, so that was one. So the stikine was like my thing that I like, had to do or my life would not feel complete. And I started to feel like drinking was holding me back from my dream. So that started it. And then we came back from the Amazon and um, I talk about this in the book, but right before we went, we sold our business, our whitewater kayaking business in Ecuador. So we had no more business and we were like trying to figure out life and we rented an apartment in Aspen and I was working on this book and working in a ski shop and like everybody at the ski shop would drink all the time, like during work. And that's just what everybody did. And, you know, I was at home and I was like, I'm a writer. So it's okay if I start drinking at 10 o'clock in the morning, like Ernest Hemingway, <laughs> like, yeah. of course I'm not like Ernest Hemingway, but it was my rationalization at the time. <laughs> and um, so then, yeah, I started to feel like more and more irritated with myself because I'm like, doesn't, isn't the stikine important enough to you that you can quit drinking? Or I, I guess at that point, I wasn't really thinking to quit. I was thinking more to cut back. And uh, like, I really related to you in your book about being an all or nothing kind of person, because I am definitely that. And like, I could not drink less. It was like 100% impossible to drink less. And I would just get so irritated with myself and I would beat myself up and say, you'll never be good enough to kayak this tequila if you keep acting this way. And um, so then it was about that time where I did pick up your book. And I will admit, I had to read it three times before like it really sunk in. And um, the stikine and actually didn't quite do it for me. I did quit drinking for the whole summer, like leading up to the stikine and did a really good job training. <clears throat> and I felt really good and I felt strong and Don and I went and did it and we had an amazing trip. But then right when we got back, um, kind of to celebrate, we were drinking and some stuff happened with Don's family. So we were drinking more. And then uh, we bought our kayaking business back. And it's really easy to drink every day doing that because people come, we run trips in Ecuador and they're like week long whitewater kayaking trips. So people come for a week, they're on vacation. Everybody loves having beer after kayaking. So it's just so easy to drink every day. And our first season that we bought the business back, I, uh, kayaked and worked 119 days in a row oh and I also gosh. drank 119 days in a row and afterwards I was just feeling so run down and so tired and uh, I thought like okay I have to do something different and it wasn't just having one beer it was like drinking basically as much as I possibly could before bed and so when I got back in March I had a, I was visiting my sister. She was in Baltimore at the time. And I was like, okay, I'm going to quit drinking. I had realized by this point that I was not a good moderator and that wasn't the path for me. So quitting was my path. And so I quit and I made it a day. And then the next day her boyfriend was like, do you want some tequila? And I was like, no, I quit drinking. And then five minutes later, I was like, yes. And I drank like half his bottle of tequila. And then we were watching, um, oh man, who's the investor guy? Why am Mark, I spacing on his name? Is no, um, Warren Buffett. We were watching like a biography of Warren Buffett. And uh, I was just sitting there and I was like, Darcy, if you keep drinking, you'll never amount to anything like Warren Buffett. And of course, like 
quitting drinking did not make me like Warren Buffett. And I knew that in my mind, but it was just like sort of this manifestation of like, you are wasting so much time drinking. And then for some reason after that, I really quit and it was so easy. And I never looked back and that was three years ago. Three years and four days actually now. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. So we talked, um, let's see, okay, so I'm gonna get timelines confused. We graduated in 1996 and we were at our 20th reunion, which would have been in 2016. Yeah. Right, so it would have been right before this actually, because we talked and you're like, I read your book. And uh, I think you were like, really into it but you're like yeah i'm definitely gonna you know try to moderate and i was like well that's awesome like because for me i'm like any path is good like pick your path like there's no judgment just pick your path and so we we had that little chat and then um so that was must have been like pretty yeah so time timeline wise yeah that was was that in the spring or the fall was our reunion i can't remember now so let's see um it must have been in the fall because i had just found out i was pregnant and my baby was born in the spring okay yeah so in 2016 like that was the summer that i was training for the stikine and then we did the stikine at the end of august so back at reunion time i was back to drinking and yeah about to have my big winter in ecuador and then it was yeah i guess so that the following March is when I quit for good. That's so cool. But yeah, I did. I read your book once before the, I really quit. And I read it again right around the time when I was like firming up the decision. And then even after I quit, I read it one more time because I was like, I just want to make sure like all this really sinks in. And it, it really was a good feeling when it, you know, when I kind of finally had my aha moment when something clicked in my brain and I didn't want to drink anymore. I was like, I really do not want to lose this feeling. Oh, that's so awesome. Um, It is super surreal, I think, in an experience that very few people probably ever have is like knowing each other in real life and and being really close. I think when we were really young, like I I remember, um, I remember your house always had the really good snacks because my parents didn't let me have any of (laughs) them. the good food and your mom always had the best snacks like you had like I don't know you had like this whole pantry with all these phenomenal snacks um, and you had such a fun little playhouse out in the backyard I remember playing out back there and uh, just and we were really little and stuff and and of course we've known each other like our whole lives really and then to read your book is super awesome and surreal but it's like a it it's like an insight into your whole life in your world and I just am having this experience because I think you are the first person who's written a book who like I really know in real life and I don't know I'm just curious how it was for you because for me like like going to bed reading your book and being like this is so crazy like this is Darcy like this is so crazy I can't believe she did this stuff this is nuts yeah no I definitely had the same experience Uh, reading your book and we had not really been in touch for quite a long time and so yeah I was you know reading about like your brother and your dad and like yeah I know all these people and yeah you're right it's just like a an interesting window into somebody else's life or even if you know them pretty well I think you're gonna be like wow you know have be have your eyes open to some new stuff yeah because like I mean seriously like we probably talked like at graduation said Right. <laughs> <You know? Yes. laughs> and it's like okay 20 years later because like 
fourth grade Annie is very different than 41 year old Annie. Yes. Um, and same. So that's just awesome. So anyway, so can you tell me now, like, all right, so you're, you're on the Amazon, like, where was your panic point? And I'm sure there were many, but where was your like, I don't know if this is gonna happen. What was happening? Uh, you know, I'm pretty like kayaking has taught me pretty well not to panic, even in situations where panicking is really the natural reaction or what you should be doing. But like you just can't in hard white water because it could mean, you know, to panic could mean a mistake, or could, which could mean death. And so you just, a big part of kayaking, like the hardest part of kayaking is the mental aspect of it and really training your mind. So I become pretty good at, you know, facing crazy situations or danger and being like, okay, what do we need to do now? But it was interesting to me, my scariest situations both manifested themselves in me being really pissed off at myself. Of like, how, why did I put myself in this situation? Darcy, you're such an idiot. And the first one was in the construction site. I don't know how far along in the book you are, but um, one of the earlier chapters is us kayaking through a construction site where they're building a new dam on the river. And um, we had like talked to the project managers before we went and got them to stop dynamiting because uh, it turned out to be a good call because we're at the bottom of like a thousand foot deep canyon and they were working like up on top, blasting like big rocks into the river. <clears throat> and so it was a really unnatural riverbed. All the slopes were super unstable because <clears throat> of their dynamite work. And so it was kind of like just these giant landslides that were resting pretty precariously. And we're trying to kayak through it and we had negotiated two and a half hours i think of dynamite stoppage but we were going so slowly because some of the portages we had to use ropes and repellent to get around like when you have to take the kayak out yeah exactly portaging so when you can't safely go down a rapid in the river you have to get out and carry your boats around but because there was cliffs and stuff we had to do some rock climbing you know haul the boats up these cliffs and rappel back down and um, yeah, so at about hour three and a half in the canyon, I was really, you know, scared they were gonna start dynamiting again and scared that even if they didn't, one of us was just gonna make, you know, one little mistake that would mean a disaster. And I was like, how did I let myself get into this position, this situation, I guess, but it worked out. And then the next time was, uh, we had to go through a part of Peru called the red zone and it's, uh, the local indigenous people there are called the Ashanika. And uh, I wanna give a little disclaimer that they were incredibly nice to us, very kind and, and helpful, uh, but they had done some bad things a couple of years before our expedition. Like they killed two Polish tourists that were canoeing down there. And they shot another guy from South Africa that was kayaking by himself. and. You know, I came to learn that they're doing all these things just out of fear because basically everyone that comes into the river area wants to take something from them or kill them. And so they've just sort of started being proactive and not really asking questions, just taking care of the threat. Wow. Um, so and is, it, is it because of them that it's called the red zone? Um, not really. So it's called the red zone for a lot of reasons, but it kind of started in the 1980s and the 1990s where there was a, like a Maoist terrorist group called the Shining Path. And they started out as a, 
uh, Maoists, um, sort of, th their idea was to have a revolution of the poor to overthrow the rich. But somehow really quickly their movement turned into just a really violent terror organization. And ironically enough, the poor people ended up, you know, taking the brunt of most of the violence. So their whole ideological movement kind of got turned on its head, but they killed like 10,000 Ashanika during that time, which was like a third of the entire population. And so that's kind of what started it. From there, from the Shining Path movement, they moved right into the drug trade and now are in 2013, Peru overtook Colombia as the number one cocaine producing region or country in the world. And that's all happening in this region. And there's very little police presence and there's a ton of illegal logging. So it's kind of a combination of all these things of why they call it the red zone. And, um, you know, like the military doesn't like to go in there because they don't want to upset like whatever equilibrium exists, you know, as tenuous as it is, they don't want to mess it up with their presence. So they kind of stay out and let people just fend for themselves. But anyway, I wasn't totally sure that I wanted to kayak through this area. And I was going to decide after the whitewater if I just packed up and went home, decided it's not worth the risk of dying since there had been six tourists in the last two years and two of them got murdered and one of them got shot. And I was like, oh, these aren't good odds. Oh my gosh. And uh, so I kind of just put off the decision so long, though, that I went there without totally deciding because I kept on thinking, oh, I have time. I have time. Doesn't seem so dangerous here. I think I'll be good, but I'll just decide tomorrow or something. And then I got there and I hadn't decided. And these military helicopters were flying over and we heard that they had killed two Shining Path leaders like 10 miles from where we were camping. And that was another moment where I was like, Darcy, you idiot. You just came here without really deciding. But we, we got some prearranged permission letters from the Ashanika. And more than anything else, this was like notifying them of what we were doing and our intentions so that when they saw some strangers coming, they didn't have to wonder what we were doing. Like if we wanted to do logging or cocaine or, you know, whatever it was. And so I think that really helped. And so they, left over from the Shining Path, they have 24-hour um, guards at all their villages. So some guy will be just standing with a shotgun down at the beach. And every time we get to a village, we'd show passports and these permission letters. And then they were so nice to us. And they'd be like, do you need anything? Yeah, you can camp here. Come take a tour of the village. And, you know, I think just that simple fact of letting them know who we were and our intentions made all the difference in the world. And then we also, once we got out of, the, we were in the red zone like 30 days altogether. And once we got out of the first like two weeks of it, we got to a point where the military would come and we got a military escort from the Peruvian Navy actually for the last two weeks in the red zones. But yeah, those were my two scariest moments. And I guess the red zone was like 30 days of being scared, but it worked, it turned out it was hard. <laughs> It was okay. Yeah. And then how did it feel to, <clears throat> to finish and come home? Like, was it, was it a massive adjustment back into reality? It was a, a really big adjustment. And, um, you know, I, I had no clue about this beforehand. I'm not always the best at doing research before an event. I just always kind of say yes and go for it and see what happens. And then I tend to do all my research after the fact. And 
so I didn't know about this thing people call like expedition and post-expedition depression or something. And mm. I kind of understood it when I started reading about it. I was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Cause when we got to that beach, it, there was like five minutes of, yay, we've done it. And then after that, it was like, shit, what are we going to do tomorrow? Cause for mm. the whole thing took us 148 days. And so for, yeah. you know, five months, we had, you know, just one purpose. It was like, wake up, go kayaking. And life was so simple. We had a clear goal. And then when it was over, it was all of a sudden like, huh, now what? You know, that was really the overwhelming feeling. And um, so, yeah, my cure for that was just to start thinking of new goals right away. So have something else to look forward to or something else to work for. But coming home was, was hard, you know, spending that much time with just Don and Midge to talk to really. I mean, we did talk to other people when we got to villages and stuff, but the bulk of our time was just spent with the three of us and trying to readjust to like having a cell phone and having to do emails every day and having to kind of be more civilized again, for lack of a better word, you know, not just living on the beach and in the sand and doing whatever you wanted to do when you wanted to do it. It was a, a real adjustment. And, I remember another one of our friends, Taylor Phillips from growing up in Aspen, he was visiting his parents in Aspen right when we got back. And this was like just a few days after we got back and he's like, you have to come to dinner. You have to come. And I said no as much as I could. And he kind of pressured me into it. And I just remember being at dinner and I was like, I really should have said no because I just like could not talk to his family. I couldn't have a normal conversation. I was like, I'm not readjusted yet. <laughs> I'm like not even here. Yeah. 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 Wow. Um, oh, that's so interesting. It's, people report that with so many things like winning the Super Bowl. And then you're like, okay, what do I do the next day? Like, yeah. or, you know, selling the business you've worked on for your whole life. And then like you wake up and you don't have to go to work. And it's like, oh my gosh, what's going to yeah. happen? Yeah. Yeah. The feeling of accomplishment <clears throat> is really fleeting and I don't want to give away the end of the book, but I talk about this a lot at the end of the book. It's like, what are we chasing? Like, mm. you know, for me, I was chasing some kind of feeling of satisfaction with my kayaking career that would allow me to be like, okay, I'm ready to move on. And uh, yeah, you can't, it's, I learned it's really not something you can chase. You know, you have to, you either have it or you don't, but if you're constantly like, this will make me happy, this will make me happy, this will make me satisfied, it's you're going to be constantly on this treadmill. Mm -hmm. That's so true. So good. Um, that's uh, interestingly in my life, like that's one of the points where I felt like my drinking really got very intense is like, I was very like ambitious and focused, I think. And I was like, oh, like I got interested in all these things. And then I realized I was really good at business. And I was like, okay, I'm going to be, um, and I was kept getting promoted quickly. And then all of a sudden, like you get a taste of it and you're like, oh, I want to be in that boardroom and that boardroom. And I want to be, you know, and then all of a sudden I was um, in charge of 28 countries traveling internationally every other week and making tons of money and living in this beautiful house in the mountains. And I had my two kids and I had my handsome husband and I just reached this moment of like, I'm not happy. Like, I, I don't understand. It wasn't even that I wasn't, didn't notice I wasn't happy before, but it, there was always this sense of next, next, next. And then yeah. when everything, like I, I had ticked all the boxes, like 33 years old, I'm like, I've ticked all my boxes. And, and so what? And I think for me, I coped actually by 
really starting to drink a lot more. And I remember a friend of mine telling me like, well, we were talking about just like, you know, feeling upset and feeling depressed and stuff like that. And she's like, yeah, well, you know, I know that I'm just upset because I'm not married and I've always wanted to be married. And I've always wanted to have kids. And I was like, man, being on the side of having, like, I think Jim Carrey says, everybody should have the experience of getting everything they ever want because <laughs> that will also make you feel the pain of like, oh my gosh, well, none of it actually, um, if you're chasing these things, it doesn't, it doesn't fulfill. And so I think, yeah, that was a point in my life where I was like, okay, well, got to drown out that pain of reality. Yeah, exactly. No, I think there's good parallels with the, <clears throat> the drinking world or the drinking lifestyle and this constant quest for, yeah, ticking off the boxes, like you say. And I've just recently started reading books about flow. Have you read much about, you know, the flow state and the, the psychology of optimal experience? And they talk so much about this, that it's not these things that are going to make us happy or the promotion or the house or the car. It's like, this is something that comes from within by really experiencing life. And, you know, I think a lot of us are we have to go through our own painful experiences to really learn that, but it seems like most people eventually come around and be like, aha, it's not, it's not this career that's gonna make me happy or this next adventure, or this next river, whatever it happens to be. I think one of the cool things about stopping drinking for me was that I, I had to learn that lesson. Like, I don't think I would have learned that lesson because it's really easy to numb out those uncomfortable feelings, you know, yeah. and that's probably, like I said, my drinking escalated. I was drinking to numb out those uncomfortable feelings, but something about stopping it, it wasn't that they weren't there. It was just like, okay, now I have to learn how to, you know, really play a game that there is no end to and how to be happy with the playing of the game and yeah. how to be happy with the, the walking, even if there's not a destination, just be happy with the footsteps, you know, exactly. and um, that I think is, is really profound, but I don't think I would have come to it if I kept numbing. And, and I'm, I'm very happy and thankful that, that that's kind of been more of a quest in my life of living in that, that point of like, okay, this is actually, I named my daughter, her name is Daylin. And it was very much for that idea. And it's so funny because our mutual friend, Jessica named her daughter Daily. Yeah. And, um, but for me, like, the name was so much, I want to call her day like that. And I do <laughs> because I want to be like, no, this is the day, like in the day that life is so daily. Like it's in the moments, like it's in the day because I had spent so much of my life. And when I, when I reached that, I had the two sons and I had all this stuff and, and I'd spent so much of my life living for the future. And I was like, no, no, I just want to slow down. And I want her to be a reminder. And she very much is her namesake. I mean, she's so <laughs> present in every day and just like, Hey, it's morning. This is amazing. It's nighttime. This is amazing. <laughs> it's lunchtime. Yay. Like, and it's funny too, because my sons weren't, I mean, they're all different, but you know, like they had different levels of, of anxiety and always wanting to do the next thing. And she's just really grounded in, in the life, but that was why I named her Dalen, so I could call her day. Yeah, um, that's good. So in, in your, in, switching back to, to drinking for a second, like how has it been for you socially, speaking of mutual friends like Jessica and like just other people and like I know Aspen's big drinking place and you know, how's it gone? Yeah, you know, it's been totally fine. And I'd say like 95% of people 
are supportive. You know, every now and then I'll get a, oh, come on, like you're so boring now or something like that. But most people have been totally supportive and it hasn't, like I wasn't going out in my drinking, like me and Don would just sit at home and drink or I'd be at work at the ski shop drinking or at work kayaking drinking. And so it wasn't like I did some major lifestyle switch where I had to quit going to the bars all the time or something like that. But I think I probably do go out a bit more with friends now because, you know, I don't have to worry about driving home. Mm -hmm. I don't have to, there's a lot of things I don't have to worry about and I can enjoy people's company a lot more. You know, I, before I maybe would go out just for the excuse of drinking, but often I'd be like, no, I'm just going to stay home and drink instead of go out. And now it's just a lot more enjoyable. I can have enjoyable conversations with people that don't end in slurred, you know, nonsenses and stuff like that. And so for me, it's been really good. And I think I'm pretty lucky to have a good support network about it. And Don has been great. You know, he's never been like, oh, why, why won't you drink anymore? He's very supportive. and. Um, you know, he still does drink, but he drinks a lot less because I'm not there. Like, come on, let's have some more tequila, honey. So it's been good for him too, I think. <laughs> yeah, that was totally like my husband too. Was so funny. Um, yeah, it's like, wow, I was really the instigator. It's hilarious. <laughs> I didn't yeah. realize that. Um, and you said that when it kind of, like when the other shoe dropped, it was like easy. Like it was something you tried out for a long time and it was just easy. Yeah, it was totally easy. Like I struggled for a number of years to cut back because that's what I thought. I was like, no, I, I need to keep drinking with the clients. So you know, this was my way of thinking. And, but I'm just going to drink less. So I, I did try that for a couple of years. And that was like truly, truly impossible. And I would wake up hungover and be like, okay, today, one beer, only one beer. And then I'd have one. And then I would have a whole bunch more. And then, you know, repeat every day and so for some reason for me I just could not moderate whatsoever but when my brain finally made the commitment to quit it was totally easy and it was <clears throat> like it wasn't a struggle I thought you know the first time I quit like three days before I actually quit for some reason it was really hard because I think my brain just hadn't gotten on board yet with the plan but then uh when I did finally decide, you know, three days later, it was like, oh, this is so easy. Why didn't I do this before? <laughs> yeah, I know. I felt the same way. It's really interesting. But it was like, uh, people are like, well, it was just so easy for you. And I was like, well, there was a lot of history of up and down and back and forth yeah. before it was just so easy. Like the last, you know, it's like the, the businesses that you're like, night success and then you talk to the founder and they're like no it was like 10 businesses that I started before this overnight success or I've been working at it for like 25 years um yeah exactly uh, the author um what's her name uh oh Rachel Hollis so she wrote this like crazy New York Times bestseller girl wash your face and so people are like wow where'd she come from out of nowhere and then you look back and I think she's written 18 books Whoa. before that right <laughs> so it's like oh, okay okay just just relax a little we're all on a on a journey here. yeah I think that's an important point to make is that you know once I made the commitment it was easy but it was you know maybe four years of struggle to get to that point of committing so yes yeah. good point yeah the decision makes it easy but you have to like it's you have to just really be 
and sometimes you think you've decided and you haven't decided yeah. and that's okay too i mean it's all okay i think we we get so worried and like we're not doing it right we're not doing the whole thing right and like it's just all okay um yeah. so what are you speaking of like the next the next goal the next thing and i know you're trying to like be in the flow and 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 move away from that but you have to have something next so what are you thinking oh well, yeah so for me for like the last six years this book has been next and it's been you know something totally outside my wheelhouse you know I, I always did enjoy writing but I've never written a book before and never had to find a literary agent or a publisher so I really learned a ton and had a ton of struggles too this was you know this was maybe my Amazon this was the thing I've worked the hardest and the longest for in my life so like a week ago, I was like, okay, I'm just gonna enjoy this, the book launch, I'm gonna be in the moment and not think about what's next. And then of course, like coronavirus had different plans. So now I'm trying to like re-strategize my book launch. But in terms of adventuresome stuff, um, I had shoulder surgery this fall. So I've been out of kayaking all winter and just recently got back into it. So the immediate goals are to get strong enough to kayak class five again, and hopefully that will happen in the next couple months. Um, me and Dawn together, Dawn really wants to kayak the longest river in Antarctica from source to sea, which is 20 miles long. And we don't expect there to be much heat or malaria, so we're looking forward to that one. And then uh, back to the Stikeen River, uh, which we, we did successfully kayak, but there's a a plateau there in northern British Columbia that the local people call the sacred headwaters and there's three rivers that are born up on this plateau and I really want to do source to see on all of them and the Stikine is one of them and um, so we did the whitewater part but there's like 350 miles above that that's not really whitewater but we'll get to see tons of like bears and moose and other animals and it's an extremely remote part of the planet and yeah, just a place that I really love. So the idea behind these three rivers is we'll get to spend probably about three months up there, kind of living off the grid and paddling every day, seeing cool stuff. That sounds amazing. Yeah. And I will tell you, Darcy, that like um, the book, um, and everybody should get this book. It's it's really awesome. And I think it's, it's a time that we need a story like this sort of more than ever. Uh, but it's funny because I was like, okay, I told... <laughs> I told my husband this. I was like, got the book. I was like, all right, this is going to be really interesting because this story by itself, the plot part just has potential to be amazing, but it's not going to be amazing unless the writing is amazing, unless the storytelling is amazing, right? Like it's not going to be like a John Cracker or like Into Thin Air or, you know, Ernest Shackleton. Like um, if, if the storytelling isn't amazing and uh, but your storytelling is amazing. Like it really Thank is. You. Like your writing is amazing. Your storytelling is amazing. It's absolutely riveting. Like it's hard to put down and, um, and just good job because well, that's awesome to hear. That's Thanks, the hardest Annie. part. <laughs> like yeah. really. It was extremely hard. And I, I am very thankful that I did quit drinking in the book writing process because I'm sure it is a much better book for it. But yeah, I worked really hard on it and uh, had a lot of people help me with uh, suggestions and like, here's what works, here's what doesn't, and people that knew a lot more than writing about me. So yeah, it, uh, they say it takes a village and it really does. Yeah, it's crazy. It's so different than you imagine it's going to be, but yeah. it's really worth it. Um, I love the quote. I heard it somewhere and it's like, do you like writing? And it's like, no, but I like having written. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Being an author. <laughs> 
<laughs> but in the midst of it, it's kind of one of those things. Um, yeah. So just a random question, just because I'm curious, but what was some of the coolest wildlife you saw? Uh, pink Amazonian river dolphins were awesome. So yeah, the I read Joe Kane's Running the Amazon, which was about the first source to sea trip, which happened in 1985. And they saw a couple dolphins, but he was writing about how they were going extinct and their populations were declining. So I'm going into this just thinking like, oh man, I hope we see one dolphin. That's what I really want to do. And we saw our first pink river dolphin on the 30th day of the expedition. And then we saw them every day, but four till the end. Wow. And they were so awesome and they're goofy. And when they surface to breathe, they make a sound really a lot like a fart. So they're going, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, just when you're feeling bummed out or bored or things are so monotonous, then you'd see these little creatures and hear their farting noises and really would make me happy. And then the second coolest thing, uh, our last day out, we saw scarlet ibis, which are these birds that um, they're about a foot and a half tall and they're bright red, like the brightest red you can think of. And they travel in flocks of like 25 birds. So we just see these crazy bright red birds flying across the horizon. Oh, that's so they cool. They were really cool too. Yeah. That's awesome. How fun. Wow, what an adventure. So um, I want to end with the question that I always sort of ask at the end of my podcast, which is like, if you were going to go back and tell the Darcy who is, uh, you know, feeling like, okay, 110, 119 days, I think you said of, of drinking and I'm getting sick of it, um, about what life is like now, what would you tell her? Well, sadly, younger Darcy would never listen to older Darcy, but... <laughs> younger Darcy. <laughs> I, I could still try. <laughs> I do think back on that. I mean, I got a lot of good advice that I ignored because I knew better when I was a kid, which I think everybody does that, but... Um, one of the annoying things of life but I guess now I like my biggest regret about drinking you know I did have a lot of fun times and blah 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 but my biggest regret is that I feel like I really wasted a lot of time you know since I quit drinking I'm so much more productive and I read so many more books because at night you know I have energy and like I think that might have resonated with me back then because I always have hated wasting time and if I could have told myself, like, look, you are wasting so much time sitting around drinking. So if you would just stop sooner, think of all you could do. Yeah. Well, you've done like more than most people. It's so cool. That's awesome. That's really fun. Well, thank you so much, Darcy. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. Just been awesome. All right. Cool. All right. All bye. right. Thanks, Annie. Bye. If you asked me about the one thing that makes this Naked Mind so different from anything else, I would have to say emotion. It is the emotion that people feel when they're really ready to make a change, when they've had that mindset shift, when they've gone through all the materials and the methodology, and they get this feeling that it's not that they never get to drink again, it's that they never have to drink again. And interestingly, according to all sorts of new research, it is emotion, especially positive emotion, more than anything else that predicates how long a change will stick, how long it will last. It is emotion. When you feel excited about the change in your life, when you feel thrilled that you're making this new difference, instead of feeling deprived or like you're missing out, everything changes. And it really makes it that this naked mind can stick for the long term. 
If you want to know more about how to truly change your emotion around drinking, I want you to join me at nakedmindpath.com. It is the path to changing your emotion, changing your feelings, and really finding freedom in your relationship with alcohol. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast as it truly helps the message reach somebody who might need to hear it today.